Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today we have on the show uh, the author of the new book, Obama and Oral History, published by Little A, Brian Abrams. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Before I get into uh, the the book itself, I, I want to ask, how do you get to be in a position or how do you get the idea in your head? I am going to interview as many people as possible inside the Obama administration, as well as um, a, a good number of people on the outside in the periphery of the administration, uh, to piece together a comprehensive history of an entire eight-year presidency. What, what, what gets one to say, I'm going to go do that? Yeah, uh, I, I think I want to answer that. Uh, Bill, a couple of different ways. And and at first I would say that uh, it's because my editor asked me to and I'm hungry for work. But 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 on a yeah, I know that's a cheesy answer, but it's true. But but also um, it's funny that I think when I was commissioned this book in the spring of 2016, my editor, if I were to guess, you know, what he had in his mind for this was something way more simplistic. I think that he thought about Obama. You got to remember 2016 of you know spring, uh, Hillary Clinton's going to be the president no matter what. Uh, so everyone thought, and this was going to be just a nice little love letter. You know, maybe it would be some funny moments and it would be some high fives and it would be kind of very much focused on the nostalgia and the celebrity of, uh, of Barack Obama. And, um, even then, I kind of kept it to myself, and I knew that it would have to be something more comprehensive and nerdier than that. Um, I didn't say anything b- because I wanted the deal. Um, but but and but even whatever I thought it was then, it turned out to be even larger. You know, you because once you get, it doesn't matter what the subject is if it's foreign policy or if it's healthcare. You just get lost in there forever. It's vast. You know. And you were not on. You, you were not a White House correspondent before this, correct? No, no. I um, my background was mostly kind of pop culture reporting. I had worked at a couple of magazines and a couple of websites that, you know, I mean, sure, politics had been covered, but on a very surface and kind of theatrical way. The you know, I think the way a lot of, uh, you know, even a lot of cable news might cover it today it didn't i didn't never had an opportunity to dig deep into anything um but i also you know a lot of my work was on you know celebrities and uh you know a sort of a lot of the the stories that in this current climate feels as a member of the media it feels um almost bourgeois to be able to have the privilege to report on it no disrespect to hollywood media i just it it just feels like that to me. <laughs> and so even though you're not coming at this from um, uh, you, you, were, you weren't immersed in this before you took on the project, you're not focusing on here 
much of the superficial aspects of the Obama presidency, you're digging into some of the the deeper, wonkier aspects of the work. You're talking about the pivot to Asia uh, and the intricacies <laughs> of the Iran nuclear deal, um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, uh, was that was that daunting for you, or, or should I say, why did you make that choice, even though that's not necessarily what your, what your background was in? Oh, that's a good question, and I have a really good answer for you. Um, so. I think for starters, for your listeners, we should explain what an oral history is. Uh, I imagine a lot of people recognize you know, the term and they've seen it around. And it's an odd term for publishing to use. Um, I, didn't, I did not invent it. But essentially, an oral his- history is a story in which um, the author or the reporter goes out, interviews a ton of people, uh, takes those transcripts and kind of slices and dices them and threads it into this like giant jigsaw puzzle. Uh, So it's, for the most part, it's a story told through quotes. And when you begin to think about uh, what an oral history of an entire presidency would look like, um, first off, that's insane. But secondly, the majority of people you're speaking to are not going to be Republicans in Congress. They're going to be people that worked at the federal agencies or in the White House um, or legislative allies, you know, on, on the Hill. And, um, you have to say to yourself, okay, well, these are people whose quotes will be in this book. They are going to be 100% on the record. This is not a scenario where they get to like whisper in an author's ear. Who's taking a lot of sources on background, uh, without, you know, having to attribute their names to the, to the quotes of the material. And so, when you have dozens and dozens of people in your hands who are talking to you on the record, um, how do you handle that? And how do you make sure that that's not going to turn into something big and fluffy and dishonest? Um, dishonest may be too strong of a word, but, but I, I just wanted to create something objective and, and not something that would try to sell the reader too hard on Obama as the greatest president of all time or as a piece of crap or whatever. Um, and so if you begin to talk about the work itself or like the wonkiness that you kind of reference, I think it's really easy for these people to get lost in that and, and kind of talk about, uh, you know, what's really true. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. And, um, and let's for folks understand there are, a lot of uh, debates and battles, you know, within the Obama administration, between people inside the administration and other Democrats, and of course between the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, and through this oral history, uh, uh, you know, structure, you get to hear both sides of all these different stories. You know, and you you may not be adjudicating as an as an author or as a reader, but you're giving the reader all that that 360 degree perspective and they can try they can try to put piece together themselves and try to make sense of what's right or what's wrong uh and and as you did that um did you feel like as you went through the process you had a better understanding of these debates and did you come to did you come to certain conclusions yourself ever talking to these people oh yeah yeah for sure uh i mean if anyone takes the time to you know you spend two years talking to these people and get to explore uh, you know, avenues that happened five years back, six years back, and they get the chance to reflect and you get the chance to reflect and learn. Um, you know, 
in a lot of cases, you'll end up driving yourself crazy. Um, I mean, I, I spun around in circles many a times, right? Um, if you, I, it's funny, I uh, just recently, like right now, this week, we're talking about, uh, you know, John Brennan and, and we, the, you know, news media talking about John Brennan and, and his legacy. And, uh, you know, of course, you're hearing uh, negatives and positives. And, and uh, it, it's interesting when I think of him and, and sort of the people in national security circles that I spoke with that talked about him uh, and his sort of handling of the classified drone program as a positive, uh, sort of this idea of like, hey, you know, these are, he was dealing with imminent threats. Uh, this is much better than what George Bush did, you know, sending troops overseas, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me, right? Um, on the other hand, uh, you, you hear people that talk about how all the hand-wringing that happened in the White House and at CIA in the Obama administration over who we drone and who we don't drone versus a sort of cowboy attitude that happened with Bush and Cheney, I mean – we killed people in both administrations. We ended up in the same place, you know. Uh, I'm talking in circles now. I guess I'm I'm answering your question already. That yes, I, you know. <laughs> um, uh, let me ask you. Let's let's get more into the specific episodes of the book. And forgive me if I go if I don't go chronologically because I, I imagine you get a lot of fascination around what happened after the 2016 election. What what was it like inside? the Obama White House, when that political neutron bomb went off, all all the battles, all of the pushing the boulders up the mountain, um, you, you get to election day 2016 and boom, it seems like it's all going to be for naught. Um, how, uh, how open, how raw, uh, how uh, transparent were your interview subjects talking about that period of time between uh, election 2016 and and the last day of the Obama administration. Yeah, those last three months. Uh, so in the book, I think I I can't maybe five to seven to eight or nine people are in there that kind of talk about those scenes, those last three months. And uh, you know, you have you have kind of two storylines working, right? You have uh, the transition uh, where you know, famously, Obama sort of sent the message down that we are going to treat the Trump administration or the incoming Trump administration, the same way the Bush people treated us, which was graciously and, you know, helping sort of as Americans keep the system going. Um, there was that storyline in which you had a lot of people who were very frustrated with that because they didn't understand why, uh, you know, why the Trump campaign would deserve that respect. Um, and then you had, and so there were some things that happened that you'll see in the book. Uh, the other side of it was the policy discussion and Brian Deese, who was like a top domestic advisor for Obama, uh, in the second term, uh, he also handled the auto bailout. Uh, he was a big piece of that in the first term, but Deese, um, sort of kind of led the charge in that discussion on, you know, what is it that we can nail down, uh, now, and make sure that it sticks, you know, whether it's uh, environmental policies that we're seeing constantly get attacked or health care. Uh, take your pick. Right. And was that was that like the day after the election or the hour of the, of the election? Like, boom, what are we locking down right now? Oh, right. I mean, yeah, no, I'm, that discussion happened right off the bat. Um, the, and it's funny how the way Deese describes it in one moment, how, you know, you had 
certain voices in the room saying, hey, let's just get aggressive as hell. You know, let's uh, even a suggestion along the lines of uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I can look it up. But, you know, let's lock down the whole Pacific Ocean and ban it for drilling. You know, Uh, uh, even Van Jones in there is now on CNN was saying you should recess appoint Merrick Garland right now. Yes. Who who cares what the Constitution or the law says? Let the Trump people sort it out after after we leave. Yeah, I who doesn't feel that way? Yeah. Um, And and so you had that discussion and then you had the other side of it, which was, well, why should we go for all we know, there could be policies that because they've clearly exhibited incompetence in many ways, they may not even be paying attention to this. So why bring it up? Um, That seems a little naive to me, right? Because by the time they're running a government, I mean, they're going to have the backing of every think tank in town that wants conservative policies and, and, you know, all of that stuff will be found. Um, But in the middle, I think as Deese kind of explained it, you know, this is, this is so Obama too, that they just went with, they continued the course to nail down the things that they had done the most homework on that could win the day in court one day. It's such an Obama answer. <laughs> well, let me let me let me rewind to earlier on the the, the headier days uh, of the of the Obama administration, and and, and let so folks understand. You talked to a lot of people uh, at all levels. You talked to cabinet people. You talked to mid level staff, um, people whose names you know, people whose names you don't know, uh, and. Uh, Immediately, once they're uh, even before they're inaugurated, they got to worry about the economic crash and how do they how do they stop that crash? Um, uh, what was your sense of how uh, how fast they pivoted from? I can't believe we've we had this historic uh, election, uh, becoming the first African American president of, uh, in all, all American history, to immediately being in this swing, sink or swim moment. How are we going to save the economy from bottoming out? Oh, uh, 10 a.m. the next day. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any reporting to show that there was discussions happening the night of, uh, you know, the election when he spoke at Grand Park. I'm sure there was, but as far as you know, people sitting at desks and trying to pin down like what were the next steps to figure out how to fill this giant hole in the economy. Uh, no, that was that was the next morning that they were off and running, um, which is remarkable because you you kind of as you were hinting at, you begin to, to wonder like what was in that policy shop uh, of the campaign prior to uh, the, the Wall Street, you know, crash in September, right? Like what, what would it have been had they not had to uh, take care of the recession? Um, so yeah, you saw that. And, and, and that was actually, as far as the book goes, that was a really difficult narrative to keep on track because as you read the book, you see the the first two chapters are very light and breezy. They cover the, the 2007, 2008 primary. And then you move on to the McCain versus Obama uh, um, election. And then chapter three starts off and you're dealing with, as you mentioned, uh, all the economic meetings and, you know, leading into the recovery act and what to deal with, you know, the rest of the TARP money, um, but also you're watching the building of the government and trying to get Senate confirmations for cabinet uh, heads. And um, it's just so much at once. And, and it seemed like the, the intra-party debates between sort of the pragmatists 
and the idealists were happening right away. And of course, these are these are divides that are still, you know, um, roiling the party uh, to this day. Uh, and one of the themes that sort of struck me in the book was you're, you kept checking in with uh, Representative Luis Gutierrez, mm. um, who uh, he, he was <laughs> very focused on what convention time slots that he got <laughs> in 2008 and 2012 and 2016 as sort of an evidence of like how because he was a big champion for immigration reform uh, and he was interpreting the the time slot I get at the convention is indicative of how seriously the administration is going to treat this issue. Right. From L- he's from Illinois. He's from the Chicago area. So he knows Obama. Obama's telling him, you know, we're good. I got immigration reform. You know, my top thing when I get there in, in, in 2009. And then almost right away, hey, uh, Congressman, um, we got this huge economic problem right here. I'm not going to be able to do this first. Um, uh, were you struck with how much? Uh, well, I don't know if the words is math. What do you think of Gutierrez's attitude was about hearing that, and how did that uh, factor in, or how did that shape the rest of the immigration debate over the course of his administration? Oh, I mean, you know, Gutierrez obviously. Well, what, what to say about him? First off, he's he's an amazing personality. He knows how to make headlines. He knows how to give a great interview. Um, so he has, you know, so his quotes throughout the whole book are really spicy and, and he is doing it, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I would say that we're on the phone. He's definitely performing for me. Right. But he, but that's just the way he is. It's not like he, he singled me out. Um, but, but in terms of, of, of reflecting how he constantly wanted to sort of keep the pressure on the white house for comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, I thought that this kind of beautifully reflected how he behaved throughout the entire time. Um, you know, I mean, there was more that I just couldn't include. And, um, but of course, you know, he was arrested, what, I think twice in front of the White House during protests. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. I thought that he was, he was sort of this really strong voice in all of it. I, I only wish I could have added more, but I was, I was really committed to keeping the book to 500 pages or less. I felt that anything more might feel a little too much like homework. And another part of the immigration thing that sort of, sort of struck me is so Obama doesn't prioritize it at the front end of the first term. It seemed like he was going to prioritize it at the front end of the second term. And then Sandy Hook happens. And I, I can't remember the exact person who mentioned it, but like someone said, uh, I, I thought we were going to do this first, but we could not look away from Sandy Hook. Uh, and um, I, I don't know how, how Gutierrez felt about that. I'm not, I'm not sure if you res- responded to um, that particular aspect of it, but it did seem like that was a pretty... Uh, pivotal um, uh, factor in how the second term went because they went into gun control, which they knew was extraordinarily uphill. And they not, not only could they not secure that, they had to delay immigration reform and that killed some of the momentum that they had from immigration for, reform coming out of the second term of uh, the reelection. Uh, yeah, I, I would say something to that. I, I don't think of, I mean, whether immigration was delayed after his reelection if it was, um, I would say it wasn't delayed necessarily all that much. Um, I mean, if you if we look back on that moment, if we look back on November 2012, Obama, you know, has a sounding reelection, right? A sounding victory. And a big piece that brought him there 
was a Latino vote. Uh, you know, the DACA work permits were issued that summer. Latinos are very happy with him. They came out for him. Uh, you know, and on the other side, you had RNC chair Reince Priebus, you know, write this memo for the Republican Party, which which explicitly describes we need to get people of color to vote for us. Specifically, we need to pat, you know, we need to support immigration reform so that we can win over Latino votes if we expect to win future elections, federal elections. And so the work was already getting started on the Hill, um, primarily in the Senate, or excuse me, at that point, well, in both the House and the Senate, things began to creep along. So when the Senate came out with its bill in the summer, it's true that it's true that, yes, it probably would have come out sooner, but because of Sandy Hook, the White House definitely needed to respond to that uh, with, you know, an attempt for some gun legislation, which, which, as you mentioned, did not did not pass, sadly. We're yeah. talking with uh, Brian Abrams, author of Obama and Oral History, published by Little A. This is the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Uh, another person who I would say gave you a, a good deal of spicy quotes was a former congressman, Barney Frank, um, who the name on the signature uh, Wall Street Reform Dodd-Frank legislation. But he was pontificating on a number of fronts. And sort of like Gutierrez, he was not thrilled with uh, Obama's pragmatism at times, uh, or, or should I say it with Obama's uh, interest in bipartisanship. Uh, but at the same time, he also shows some sympathy for uh, pragmatic arguments. So I had a hard time sort of squaring uh, the totality of where he was coming from. He, he was very critical of uh, Obama's uh, talk of bipartisanship of being postpartisan, and I think he said it gave, it gave me postpartisan depression. Uh, but then he would push back on some of the critics on the left, saying, "Well, you can't." A lot of people on the left said Obama should have prosecuted more bankers to show that um, he meant business on Wall Street reform. And Frank would say, "Well, you know, these were vague laws, and we don't, we don't, we don't throw people in jail for." Uh, possibly violating a vague law, which may, they might not have even realize would be a violation because the law is so vague. Um, so he, he, you have a number of people giving those kinds of defenses of the Obama administration at times. Um, but Frank was someone who seemed to be on, on both sides of the coin. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think he, um, Barney Frank's a good example of someone who definitely Throughout the multiple conversations, or excuse the multiple topics that I, I talked with him about, we had two phone calls. Uh, you know, he he certainly proves his independence from uh, Obama. You know that he doesn't come across as as like um, you know a partisan in that way. Uh, I mean, obviously, he didn't support anything the Republicans had to do, but but it, it, he was not afraid to criticize where it was needed. Uh, I mean, you brought up a number of subjects. Uh, you know, the, the first one, when you think about like the postpartisanship, that seems to be, I mean, if there's like a legacy critique, if there's such a thing, right? When you look at like, what was the worst thing, blah, 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 did, or what's the thing you could criticize a president for the most? I mean, the Obama gets a lot of flack for a lot of things, but, uh, and he obviously gets credit for things too. But um, the postpartisan sort of rhetoric does seem to come up first, right? This idea that either he was naive or he was just so hung up on this like pseudo academic idea that, uh, you know, there are good ideas on both sides. We should be working together, blah, blah, blah. And he certainly, you know, campaigned on that notion. Uh, 
Um, and, and, you know, Barney Frank, I think his, his jokes and his statements about that in the book were certainly reflective of a number of veteran democratic lawmakers, you know, that probably all gave a giant eye roll, uh, you know, to that idea. So, but I also noticed that as these debates were playing out, uh, within the democratic party, um, they were being absorbed by various White House officials. And so you don't get a sense that the White House was in unison saying, you know, well, you got to understand where Obama's coming from here. He had to do do it this way and you're wrong. There are people inside the White House that were had some second guessing, too. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, so an example of, of where? Um, well, uh for example, uh, the um, the Libya uh, debate, you know, there's a lot of second guessing whether they were correct in having a military intervention because they didn't have the kind of uh, uh, policy follow through uh, right. after they dislodged Gaddafi. So there's some second guessing. Well, maybe maybe we should have done that. Maybe the folks who are more anti-war had, had it right there. Yeah, that's one example that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that. I don't think it's controversial to say that, you know, uh, you know, that the U.S. when there are partners in Europe and even in like Gulf, Arab Gulf states that, you know, want to stop a genocide or want to stop this, con- you know, this conflict and intervene when you have like multiple countries stepping in and agreeing on it. Like that seems like a pretty sound thing to lean into. Right. And And, and obviously I speak as I think the average American does that doesn't like the idea of us sticking our noses across the other side of the world when, you know, and create, you know, making things worse. Obviously we don't have a good record with that. In fact, I can't think of an instance other than world war two where we did have a good uh, outcome, but, but uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of back end of that, right. Where we didn't stick around for stability uh, sort of left things uh, ragged. And yeah, there, there was definitely conflict in the white house over, over that. Too. Uh, I one thing, I, and maybe this was reported elsewhere, and, I, and I'm not aware of it. Uh, I I did not know that someone from the White House went to the Occupy Wall Street protest. Oh yeah, to try to to try to connect with somebody there and see if there was uh, ways they could they could work together. Uh, that was that was John Carson, if I remember correctly. Correct. Right. Uh, can, can you tell us more about that scene and uh, why did the White House, or, or maybe 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 he was freelancing? I don't know, uh, but why why was that connection sought out and what what came of it? Sure. So this is the fall of 2011. Uh, yeah, John Carson, who was in the Office of Public Engagement, and he was also uh, you know he was also a key strategist in the 2008 campaign, uh, just helping build. Uh, sort of a grassroots support for Obama at scale. Um, you know, he and and another guy, Jeremy Byrd, were kind of uh, you know semi-famous for doing that. And so here's John Carson in, in the West Wing now, uh, recognizing this movement in downtown Manhattan. And uh, he did. He took a train to New York, and he wanted to meet with uh, you know some of these guys and and you know just see what agenda, if any, that they had and. You know, to what end did John Carson want to sit with them? I think it was very much for uh, to line up perhaps, you know, whatever domestic legislative progress that the White House had in mind. Maybe they could get, you know, an advocate out there to work with them. You know, who knows? Maybe this is also going to help for 2014 turnout. I mean, it's just you're looking at someone who's saying this is a fresh new ally. Let's let's see what's up with them. 
And, um, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't go that way. I mean, they were Occupy was not interested in participating, uh, you know, in the conventional sort of system of politics, right? They, they wanted to stay outside of it. In fact, they kept saying to him over and over again at the, at the meeting, all they were interested in was staying in the park and it was getting colder. And that was, that was the big concern. And, and the White House ended up having a much different uh, experience dealing with Black Lives Matter activists versus Occupy activists, correct? Because um, they, they seem to have a more of a clearer sense of, of, of a policy agenda, whereas Occupy was talking more about some sort of vague systematic change. Yeah, I, I think – well, I don't know. I think um, – right. Well, I think vague systematic change, what you mean by that is that, you know – uh, occupy i mean i think what their criticism was 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 clear as far as there being you know 1% of uh, the population's holding all the money and you know the rest of us are just kind of hoping for like drops of milk to come from the mountain or whatever the metaphor is you know and and there isn't like a crystal clear solution to you know how to make that change i mean you know obviously we can talk about you know we could sit here and talk about you know bumping the corporate uh, tax rate back up to what it was during the Eisenhower era, or obviously having stricter rules on, you know, investment banking, blah, blah, blah. But it, 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 it doesn't have this like immediate through line as to what needs to happen. Uh, whereas I get Black Lives Matter, you know, it, it does feel like more clear and I think also more relatable on like the local level. And this was pointed out in the book too, right? That like you could have an Occupy movement in Madison, Wisconsin, but it's weird to have an like Occupy Wall Street, there is like a concrete thing that you are uh, focused against, right? This, you know, the the banks and all the buildings down there. And Occupy Madison, Wisconsin is kind of like, well, yeah, I guess we do the, the Chase Bank over there. That works. It's it's not quite the same uh, aesthetically. Black Lives Matter, I mean, unfor- you know, you have victims to police violence in how many cities? I mean, all of the cities. So like, you know, and there were high profile incidents caught on, you know, cell phone cameras in, in dozens of cities. And so that, that like cuts through to, to the average uh, person pretty clearly, like what they are protesting. You also, so you didn't just speak with Obama uh, White House officials. You didn't just speak with Democratic Congress people or Democratic campaign operatives. You talked to various Republicans to get their perspective on the Obama presidency as well. You spoke with uh, Stuart Stevens, who was on the Romney campaign and later became uh, an anti-Trump conservative. Uh, you speak to Michael Steele, not the RNC chair, but the John Boehner uh, aide. Um, you spoke to Senator Saxby Chambliss, for example. Uh, and uh, uh, did you speak to them? Well, some one question: Do you speak to them before Trump won or after? <laughs> and uh, based on that, was their perspective on the Obama presidency colored by the fact that uh, they knew uh, the Trump backlash was here, or were they, or did they speak differently because they had no idea that was coming? Hmm. Uh, so they, let's see, I spoke with uh, Republicans before and after the Trump uh, win in 2016. And in some cases, I spoke with them uh, more than once before and after. Uh, I know Stuart Stevens and I had a couple of phone calls. Uh, Pete Hoekstra and I had a couple phone calls. The con- congressman, um, was he on the Foreign Relations Committee? Uh, Hoekstra was, let's see, yeah, he, he was in the House of Representatives for about 20 years from Michigan. And uh, he is now the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands for Trump. Um, and Scott Brown, I spoke with, I believe only before the election, he's now 
ambassador in New Zealand uh, for Trump. Um, so, so I don't think that for any of them, I can think of an instance where they said, oh, I'm going to talk to this guy because Trump won or Trump lost. I, I really just think, you know, you got to remember, I got, I think, 112 people on the record for this book. And then there was like a handful of people who I ended up speaking with just on background. Um, but, you know, I probably reached out to total 250 people. <laughs> so, so you're thinking of, you know, who I didn't reach. These just so happened to be the Republicans willing to talk to me. And I know, I think Hoekstra said, because some of the, in the, in the first term, you, you got a lot of Democrats on the record saying, these Republicans, they were out to screw Obama from the get-go. They, while we were at our inaugural balls, they were plotting about how they're going to thwart us every step of the way. And I think it was Hoekstra that said, oh, that, that's not how I remember it. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we had, sure we have our differences, but we weren't trying to be obstructionist all the way through. Um, uh, were they trying to um, write their role in history so people did not think they that any flaws should be you know dumped on their shoulders? Oh yeah, I mean I, yeah. So you're referring to the night of January twentieth, two thousand nine, where famously, and this was written about later uh, in New York Times uh, magazine uh, by I think it was was it Matt By I think wrote it, and then Robert Draper has this scene also in in his book on uh, the Tea Party Congress. Uh, that at the caucus room, this, this, you know, restaurant in Washington, DC, you know, 10 or 11 Republicans got together. I mean, you know, Newt Gingrich, uh, you know, John Kyle, I think was there, Paul Ryan, uh, you know, Frank Luntz, the pollster, uh, Pete Hoekstra was among them, a bunch of these guys, and they're around a circle having their stakes and whatnot. And uh, talking about, you know, how are they going to throw sand in the gears uh, to stop the Obama presidency from becoming a two-term presidency. That was essentially the conversation at that table. And uh, you're, you're right. In the book, Pete Hoekstra kind of hedges and says, yeah, the parts of the dinner I was at, I don't remember it that way. I just remember us talking about strategizing in general. And sure, I'll give him that. I mean, why wouldn't a caucus get together and strategize? But it, it seems it seems pretty unprecedented to me for, you know, a a large group to get together and go, okay, how many different ways can we say no, despite whatever the, whatever, whatever it is on the table that could help Americans or hurt Americans, how many different ways can we say no? Uh, that, you know, that was a first. Now, one other person that you talked to multiple times, which I thought was an interesting choice was Joe Lieberman. Uh, Cause here's Lieberman. He, uh, was a Democrat. He was Al Gore's VP nominee. He ran for president himself in 2004. Um, but he is, he does not get the Democratic Party's nomination for Senate in 2006, but he wins the seat anyway as an independent and is still caucusing with, with Democrats. And in those early days when Republicans are being very reluctant to give Obama any support on the first order of business, which is the Recovery Act, how do we, how do we stop this economic freefall? Um, you know, there's Joe Lieberman, a vote that you need. Uh, and Harry Reid meets with him to say we need to. Um, and I should say he uh, endorsed John McCain in the uh, 2008 election uh, and even uh, spoke at the Republican convention. I thought I thought the story of how Lieberman made that decision 
you talk about in the book, which I hadn't heard anywhere else, that it, 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 it seemed kind of uh, on the fly on Lieberman's part. Uh, and then Harry Reid meets them to try to exact some punishment on him from doing that. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about, about what transpired from there? Yeah, sure. So, so Lieberman, and mind you, in the book, he talks about, yeah, like you say, these sort of, this sort of like brief inner dialogue he kind of has with himself, or so he shares in the book, about what made him decide in the summer of 2008 to support John McCain. And mind you, he's showing up at the convention. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if it's safe to assume that Lieberman was aware that Sarah Palin was going to be the vice president at that time. Uh, if he did, you know, he certainly, he couldn't have been aware of what a train train wreck she was going to be. I mean, they obviously none of them did. Um, and yet he still continued to support the McCain campaign through the fall, even though she's running around like a maniac. <laughs> and you have him. Yeah, you have him in Arizona with Senator McCain during you know election night. He's he's there. He was supported the whole way. And he's caucusing with the Democrats. Right. Uh, and so this was two days. This was the Thursday after uh, election night that Lieberman goes to visit uh, the, the Harry Reid, the. Senate majority leader at the time for the Democrats and Harry Reid's demoting him. He's taking him off his Homeland security or he wants to take Lieberman off the Homeland security committee where he was chairing, give him like a small business committee type uh, chairmanship, which as Lieberman refers to in the book is a nothing committee. And uh, Lieberman leverages this idea that he could caucus with the Republicans if he gets demoted in the Senate. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you caught that. that was like well, really- and, well, and after he says that, Reed immediately flips and says, yeah, yeah. oh, good, because Reed's discussion with Lieberman is the caucus wants to punish you. The caucus wants to strip you of your seniority. So and here's how. And so therefore, why, why don't you step down from your committee chair? And then Lieberman comes back and says, well, I may just go join the Republicans. And immediately Reed says, OK, well, let's let's figure out we're going to get you your votes from the Democrats. Right. To retain your seniority, so it shows you what kind of you know, Machiavellian you know head counter Harry Reid is. Um, well, it's it's Harry Reid, and you know, and Harry Reid is he ran out of cards. There was no other card he could play for Lieberman. Like, okay, you, you'll keep your damn committees, right? And they know that they need sixty votes for what they're dealing with ahead, because you know uh, when you you mention healthcare, or you may have mentioned the economy, but but in the case of healthcare, uh, you know. They needed 60 for that. And that was going to be a law that was going to be passed. I mean, I think actually, I think uh, committee hearings on healthcare were held as far back as like spring of 2008. So it didn't even matter who was going to get elected, you know. Um, so but Lieberman, while the Republicans are being uh, super obstructionist, you, you you show Lieberman in the room uh trying to bring along Susan Collins and Olympia Snow and Arlen Specter, uh, even though at the same time this this anger towards Lieberman is still palpable in the Democratic caucus, uh, and somehow they managed to actually get that that deal done. Yeah, I, I think in the Recovery Act, and you see this too, Michael Grunwald talks about this, and he kind of, he wrote this famous book on the Recovery Act. Uh, you, you, you know, Lieberman, I think, was an ally somewhat in getting 60 votes for the Recovery Act um, in helping get, you know, the moderate Republicans, the Susan Collins and Arlen Specters and Olympia Snows kind of helping win them over. Um, and so, yeah, and so there was some horse trading that, as you mentioned, you saw, like, you kind of feel like you're in the room with uh, 
with Durbin and with Schumer and with Reed trying to like win them over. So it seemed as if Lieberman was acted, helped act as a buffer to kind of bring them on. Uh, whereas healthcare, he was definitely a thorn in their side. Oh, sure. I mean, sunk, sunk the whole Medicare uh, buy-in proposal. But even, but even telling the Recovery Act story, I mean, I, certainly you could you could read all the same information that we're talking about here and conclude um, Obama and Democratic leaders should have stood up to these guys more. And the package wasn't as big as it could have been because we, they were bowing to Lieberman and to Specter and to Snow. Uh, there's a scene you mentioned um, that, that I forget who recounted the story. Um, while were, those few Republicans, moderate Republicans, were trying to keep the cost down, Specter comes in, demands ten billion dollars for cancer research, uh, and the Democrats are how, how the audacity you're trying to nickel and dime us. Now you want this giant trophy for your pet project, but of course he had the vote and they had to, and they had to count out to him. Uh, so you could still take away all that stuff and say if you drew a firmer line, you could have tried to stare those guys down and maybe got more more money out of it. Although the Obama officials that you quote said, look, you were never going to get more anyway because uh, it ended up being about $800 billion and going more than that was going to be a shock to a political shock to the system, if not an economic shock. Uh, so I mean, do you feel that regardless of where you come from, wh- wh- whatever your preconceived notion of the Obama administration is, you can interpret the same information in this oral history in different ways. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, uh, one thing I want to say about the Recovery Act, uh, I'm not sure that there, when you look at the woulda, coulda, shouldas and how we could have gotten more than $787 billion for the spending bill uh, by, as you might suggest, you know, if there was a way to pressure the moderates more, there wasn't. Uh, They knew that they held all the cards. But the, the, the more common... Uh, critique that I constantly hear is, well, you know, why didn't the Democrats go through reconciliation? And, you know, we could have gotten uh, a bill for, you know, 51 votes were not a problem in the Democratic Senate in 2009. Just for folks who don't know, reconciliation is a way to circumvent a filibuster and therefore you don't have to have 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. You can do it with a straight majority of, of, in this case, 50 votes because you'd have Biden as a tiebreaker. Right, right. So so the, the, the problem with that is, is that, I mean, here we go, getting a little wheezy, but, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the Senate didn't pass a budget for that year in order to pass a law in reconciliation. The idea, the argument for a reconciliation bill is that uh, essentially this bill will help cut down the deficit in our budget over the next 10 years. But you can't make that argument if there is no budget passed yet. And so if for that Democratic Senate to have passed a budget uh, and who knows how long that would have taken, uh and if you could have won over, you know, the 51 votes even then, because we had a number of Democratic uh, senators that were conservative. Um, and even if you did pass that budget to write that bill, to write a spending bill in a way that makes it seem like it's cutting the deficit when it's clearly adding to it. I just feel like there were obstacles there that probably couldn't have realistically been done when the clock was ticking so hard. Uh, with the economy in the in the condition it was. The book is Obama and Oral History, published by Little A. The author is Brian Abrams. Thank you so much for being on New Books and Politics. Thanks, Bill. I'll come on anytime.